Chapter Thirteen of When William Came by Saki. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. When William Came by Saki. Chapter Thirteen Torywood. Yeovil got out of the train at a small, clean wayside station, and rapidly formed the conclusion that neatness, abundant leisure, and a devotion to the cultivation of wallflowers and wyandots were the prevailing influences of the station-master's life. The train slid away into the hazy distance of trees and meadows, and left the traveller standing in a world that seemed to be made up in equal parts of rock-garden, chicken-coops, and whisky advertisements. The station-master, who appeared also to act as emergency porter, took Yeovil's ticket with the gesture of a kind-hearted person brushing away a troublesome wasp, and returned to a study of the poultry chronicle, which was giving its readers sage counsel concerning the ailments of belated July chickens. Yeovil called to mind the station-master of a tiny railway town in Siberia, who had held him in long and rather intelligent converse on the poetical merits and demerits of Shelley and he wondered what the result would be if he were to engage the English official in a discussion on Lermontov, or, for the matter of that, on Shelley. The temptation to experiment was, however, removed by the arrival of a young groom, with brown eyes and a friendly smile, who hurried into the station and took Yeovil once more into a world where he was of fleeting importance. In the roadway outside was a four-wheeled dog-cart with a pair of the famous Torywood Blue Roans. It was an agreeable variation in modern locomotion to be met at a station with high-class horse-flesh, instead of the ubiquitous motor, and the landscape was not of such a nature that one wished to be whirled through it in a cloud of dust. After a quick spin of some ten or fifteen minutes through twisting hedge-girt country roads, the roans turned in at a wide gateway, and went with dancing, rhythmic step along the park drive. The screen of oak-crowned upland suddenly fell away, and a grey, sharp-cornered building came into view in a setting of low-growing beeches and dark pines. Torywood was not a stately, reposeful-looking house. It lay amid the sleepy landscape like a couched watchdog with pricked ears and wakeful eyes. Built somewhere about the last years of Dutch William's reign, it had been a centre ever since for the political life of the countryside a storm-centre of discontent, or a rallying-ground for the well-affected, as the circumstances of the day might entail. On the stone-flagged terrace in front of the house, with its quaint leaden figures of Diana pursuing a hound-pressed stag, successive squires and lords of Torywood had walked to and fro with their friends, watching the thunder-clouds on the political horizon, or the shifting shadows on the sundial of political favour, tapping the political barometer for indications of change, working out a party campaign, or arranging for the support of some national movement. To and fro they had gone in their respective generations, men with the passion for statecraft and political combat strong in their veins, and many oft-recurring names had echoed under those wakeful-looking casements, names spoken in anger or exultation, or murmured in fear and anxiety. Bolingbroke, Charles Edward, Walpole, the Farmer King, Bonaparte, Pitt, 
Wellington, Peel, Gladstone. Echo and time might have graven those names on the stone flags and grey walls. And now one tired old woman walked there, with names on her lips that she never uttered. A friendly riot of fox-terriers and spaniels greeted the carriage, leaping and rolling and yelping in an exuberance of sociability, as though horses and coachman and groom were comrades who had been absent for long months instead of half an hour. An indiscriminately affectionate puppy lay flat and whimpering at Yeovil's feet, sending up little showers of gravel with its wildly thumping tail, while two of the terriers raced each other madly across lawn and shrubbery, as though to show the blue roans what speed really was. The laughing-eyed young groom disentangled the puppy from between Yeovil's legs, and then he was ushered into the grey silence of the entrance-hall, leaving sunlight and noise and the stir of life behind him. "'Her ladyship will see you in her writing-room,' he was told, and he followed a servant along the dark passages to the well-remembered room. There was something tragic in the sudden contrast between the vigour and youth and pride of life that Yeovil had seen crystallised in those dancing, high-stepping horses, scampering dogs, and alert, clean-limbed young men-servants, and the age-frail woman who came forward to meet him. Eleanor, Dowager Lady Graymartin, had for more than half a century been the ruling spirit at Torywood. The affairs of the county had not sufficed for her untiring activities of mind and body. In the wider field of national and imperial service, she had worked and schemed and fought with an energy and a far-sightedness that came probably from the blend of caution and bold restlessness in her Scottish blood. For many educated minds the arena of politics and public life is a weariness of dust and disgust. To others it is a fascinating study, to be watched from the comfortable seat of a spectator. To her it was a home. In her town-house, or down at Torywood with her writing-pad on her knee and the telephone at her elbow, or in personal counsel with some trusted colleague, or persuasive argument with a halting adherent or half-convinced opponent, she had laboured on behalf of the poor and the ill-equipped, had fought for her idea of the right, and above all for the safety and sanity of her fatherland. Spade-work when necessary, and leadership when called for, came alike within the scope of her activities, and not least of her achievements, though perhaps she hardly realised it, was the force of her example, a lone, indomitable fighter, calling to the half-caring and the half-discouraged, to the laggard and the slow-moving. And now she came across the room with the tired step of a tired king, and that look which the French so expressively call l'air des fées, the charm which heaven bestows on old ladies, reserving its highest gift to the end, had always seemed in her case to be lost sight of in the dignity and interest of a great dame who was still in the full prime of her fighting and ruling powers. Now, in Yeovil's eyes, she had suddenly come to be very old, stricken with the forlorn languor of one who knows that death will be weary to wait for. She had spared herself nothing in the long labour, the ceaseless building, the watch and ward, and in one short autumn week she had seen the overthrow of all that she had built, the falling asunder of the world in which she had laboured. Her life's end was like a harvest home, when blight and storm have laid waste the fruit of long toil and unsparing outlay. Victory had been her goal, the death or victory of an old heroic challenge, 
for she had always dreamt to die fighting to the last, death or victory, and the gods had given her neither, only the bitterness of a defeat that could not be measured in words, and the weariness of a life that had outlived happiness or hope. Such was Eleanor, dowager Lady Greymartin, a shadow amid the young red-blooded life at Torywood, but a shadow that was too real to die, a shadow that was stronger than the substance that surrounded it. Yeovil talked long and hurriedly of his late travels, of the vast Siberian forests and rivers, the desolate tundras, the lakes and marshes where the wild swans rear their broods, the flower-carpet of the summer fields, and the winter ice-mantle of Russia's northern sea. He talked, as a man talks, who avoids the subject that is uppermost in his mind and in the mind of his hearer, as one who looks away from a wound or deformity that is too cruel to be taken notice of. Tea was served in a long oak-panelled gallery, where generations of Musselfords had romped and played as children, and remained yet in effigy, in a collection of more or less faithful portraits. After tea, Yeovil was taken by his hostess to the aviaries, which constituted the sole claim which Torywood possessed to being considered a show-place. The third Earl of Grey Martin had collected rare and interesting birds, somewhere about the time when Gilbert White was penning the last of his deathless letters, and his successors in the title had perpetuated the hobby. Little lawns and ponds and shrubberies were partitioned off for the various ground-loving species, and higher cages with interlacing perches and rockwood shelves accommodated the birds whose natural expression of movement was on the wing. Quails and francolins scurried about under low-growing shrubs. Peacock pheasants strutted and sunned themselves. Pugnacious ruffs engaged in perfunctory battles, from force of habit now that the rivalry of the mating season was over. Chuffs, ravens, and loud-throated gulls occupied sections of a vast rockery, and bright-hued Chinese pond-herons and delicately stepping egrets waded among the water-lilies of a marble-terraced tank. One or two dusky shapes, seen dimly in the recesses of a large cage built round a hollow tree, would be lively owls when the evening came on. In the course of his many wanderings, Yeovil had himself contributed three or four inhabitants to this little feathered town, and he went round the enclosures, renewing old acquaintances and examining new additions. "'The falcon cage is empty,' said Lady Grey Martin pointing to a large wired dome that towered high above the other enclosures. "'I let the lanner fly free one day. The other birds may be reconciled to their comfortable quarters and abundant food and absence of dangers, but I don't think all those things could make up to a falcon for the wild range of cliff and desert. When one has lost one's own liberty, one feels a quicker sympathy for other caged things, I suppose.' There was silence for a moment— and then the dowager went on in a wistful, passionate voice. "'I am an old woman now, Mary. I must die in my cage. I haven't the strength to fight. Age is a very real and cruel thing, though we may shut our eyes to it and pretend it is not there. I thought at one time that I should never really know what it meant, what it brought to one. I thought of it as a messenger that one could keep waiting out in the yard till the very last moment.' I know now what it means. But you, Mary, you are young, you can fight. Are you going to be a fighter, or the very humble servant of the pater compli? 
"'I shall never be the servant of the fait accompli,' said Yeovil. "'I loathe it. "'As to fighting, one must first find out what weapon to use, "'and how to use it effectively. "'One must watch and wait.' "'One must not wait too long,' said the old woman. "'Time is on their side, not ours. "'It is the young people we must fight for now, "'if they are ever to fight for us. "'A new generation will spring up. "'A weaker memory of old glories will survive. "'The éclat of the ruling race will capture young imaginations. "'If I had your youth, Murray, and your sex, "'I would become a commercial traveller.' "'A commercial traveller? exclaimed Yeovil. "'Yes.' "'one whose business took him up and down the country, "'into contact with all classes, "'into homes and shops and inns and railway carriages. "'And as I travelled I would work, "'work on the minds of every boy and girl I came across, "'every young father and young mother, too, "'every young couple that were going to be man and wife. "'I would awaken or keep alive in their memory "'the things that we have been, "'the grand, brave things that some of our race have done.' and i would stir up a longing a determination for the future that we must win back i would be a counter-agent to the agents of the beta compli in course of time the government would find out what i was doing and i should be sent out of the country but i should have accomplished something and others would carry on the work that is what i would do murray even if it is to be a losing battle fight it fight it Yeovil knew that the old lady was fighting her last battle, rallying the discouraged and spurring on the backward. A footman came to announce that the carriage waited to take him back to the station. His hostess walked with him through the hall, and came out on to the stone-flagged terrace, the terrace from which a former Lady Grey Martin had watched the twinkling bonfires that told of Waterloo. Yeovil said good-bye to her as she stood there, a wan, shrunken shadow, yet with a greater strength and reality in her flickering life than those parrot men and women that fluttered and chattered through London drawing-rooms and theatre foyers. As the carriage swung round a bend in the drive, Yeovil looked back at Torywood, a lone grey building in the midst of the sleeping landscape. An old, pleading voice was still ringing in his ears. Imperious and yet forlorn came through the silence of the trees the echoes of a golden horn calling to distances. Somehow, Yeovil knew that he would never hear that voice again, and he knew, too, that he would hear it always with its message, Be a fighter! And he knew now with a shamefaced consciousness that sprang suddenly into existence, that the summons would sound for him in vain. The weary, brain-torturing months of fever had left their trail behind, a lassitude of spirit and a sluggishness of blood, a quenching of the desire to roam and court adventure and hardship. In the hours of waking and depression, between the raging intervals of delirium, he had speculated, with a sort of detached, listless indifference, on the chances of his getting back to life and strength and energy. The prospect of filling a corner of some lonely Siberian graveyard or Finnish cemetery had seemed near realisation at times, and for a man who was already half dead, the other half did not particularly matter. But when he had allowed himself to dwell on the more hopeful side of the case, 
It had always been a complete recovery that awaited him. The same Yeovil as of yore, a little thinner and more lined about the eyes, perhaps, would go through life in the same way, alert, resolute, enterprising, ready to start off at short notice for some desert or upland, where the eagles were circling and the wildfowl were calling. He had not reckoned that death, evaded, and held off by the doctor's skill, might exact a compromise, and that only part of the man would go free to the west. And now he began to realise how little of mental and physical energy he could count on. His own country had never seemed in his eyes so comfort-yielding, and to be desired as it did now, when it had passed into alien-keeping, and become a prison-land as much as a homeland. London, with its thin mockery of a season, and its chattering horde of empty-hearted self-seekers, held no attraction for him. But the spell of English country life was weaving itself round him, now that the charm of the desert was receding into a mist of memories. The waning of pleasant autumn days in an English woodland, the whir of game-birds in the clean harvested fields, the grey moist mornings in the saddle, with the magical cry of hounds coming up from some misty hollow, and then the delicious abandon of physical weariness in bathroom and bedroom after a long run and the heavenly snatched hour of luxurious sleep, before stirring back to life and hunger, the coming of the dinner-hour, and the jollity of a well-chosen house-party. That was the call which was competing with that other trumpet-call, and Yeovil knew on which side his choice would incline. End of chapter 13